We're going to talk tonight about how two priests went and offered improper fire and got burned by it. And so we're going to look at the story of Nadab and Abihu here in Leviticus chapter 10. And so let me go to the Lord in prayer and then we'll begin. Father, thank you so much for your kindness to us and bringing us here again tonight. God, uh, as we look around the room, we're just thankful for our friends and our neighbors and just our family that we see here at Taylor's First and how Wednesday nights is a time again during the week that we can come together with our family, have supper together and sit around the tables with your word. And so Father, just thank you for this and help us not to take these times for granted. These times are not, are not things that just are here today and gone tomorrow. These are precious times, Father. And so we just pray that, that we would rejoice tonight together as we look to your word and look to this passage. God, help our church during this next month, not only to be generous and faithful, but Father, to be generous and faithful with the gospel every day with our neighbors and our friends. And so Lord, I just pray that uh, you would light a spark in every one of our hearts to take your good news to anybody and everybody we know because we believe your word and we believe, Father, that eternity is coming for each and every one of us and we believe there's only two places that we may go and we believe, God, that Jesus is the only one that can safely bring us home into heaven itself. So why would we dare hold back that good news from anybody? And so, God, help us to live out what we believe in every conversation and every action. Thank you for your word again. Help us now as we look to it. In Jesus' name, amen. Moving through Leviticus, we have gotten, as, it, as I said, talking last week and just kind of just quickly, Leviticus is giving instruction to the, the uh, priesthood with Aaron being the first high priest, Moses' brother, and, and the instruction is being given. Remember, if you go back and just kind of draw this language together to the book of Exodus chapter 39, remember God had instructed his people there at Sinai with the Ten Commandments, with the other laws, the case law, and how they are to live in his presence as his people. He'd given them that, but then he'd also told them how they were to build a place for him, his temple or his tabernacle, if you will, for him to be there and to dwell with them. So he gave them clear instruction of how they are to build this tent that they would use to march through where God would dwell with his people. He gave them instruction about how to, how to build the Ark of the Covenant and how, what to put in the Holy of Holies and, and how, to, how to build out the, the rooms and the, uh, how every space works. He gave them clear instruction about all of it. And then in Exodus, they built it. He provided the tools. He provided the, the means. He provided the skills with the people that were there. And they built this place for him. And if you remember, at the end of the book of Exodus, this tabernacle has been built. And it says in chapter 40, verse 34, Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. In other words, God's presence came into the place. The people had gotten instructions from God of what to do. They had obeyed him and did exactly what he said. And now, almost as some sense of like the Lord has, has put his stamp of approval on what he had told them to do and what they had done, he fills the place, his presence, which shows that they had been faithful, right? 
God is there in the tabernacle dwelling with his people. Remember even that language of the Ark of the Covenant and how the Ark was the footstool, right? So God's throne is in heaven, his footstool here on earth. And so this was the whole point of the Exodus. God was rescuing his people out of slavery in Egypt to dwell with his people so he could be with them. And so at the end of Exodus, he is with them. Now, how are the people to handle that tabernacle? If that tabernacle has been built and that's where God dwells, what were the rules concerning how they are to use it? What was it supposed to be? What were the sacrifices they're supposed to bring? Who was going to manage and keep the tabernacle and watch over it to make sure it is done right? That's what we get into in Leviticus. And so where you end there with the tabernacle being filled with God's presence, in Leviticus now, it becomes like, how do we use this tabernacle before the Lord in his presence? And so that's what we're finding. And so it starts off immediately with no small talk. Remember, it just tells us, boom, here's the sacrifices. And it tells us that these sacrifices we are to do, the people were to do in order to dwell with God. And it gives them three uh, voluntary sacrifices to show thanksgiving and peace. And, and these, uh, then it gives them two mandatory sacrifices for their sin and for their guilt. And it tells them that they're to bring these sacrifices continually to the tabernacle so that they can dwell with God in his presence as his people. And then it starts to tell us who was to manage it. And it, it, it tells us there in chapter 6, that second half, how these priests were to come and how the priests how to, had to manage each and every sacrifice in chapter, second half of chapter 6 and into chapter 7. What they were to do, what their responsibilities were. It tells us that their responsibilities were to maintain the altar with fire day and night. Their responsibilities were to offer sacrifices continually for themselves so they would be clean before God, so they could, they could bring it. And it tells them that they were to help the Israelites manage these sacrifices when they come. This was their duty. That duty had privileges. The privileges were they were, they were free and and. and free to eat some of the sacrifices that were brought in for the Lord would provide from them for them from those sacrifices that, that privileges were there as it that they were to represent the people in between God and them that they were to represent the people sacrifices before the Lord finally we saw last week how they were ordained then and set apart and how the Lord did just that in chapter 9 uh, chapter 8 and chapter 9, setting Aaron and his sons apart for this priesthood. They were to do these things. It told them their duties. It sets them apart. And then in chapter 9, we see the first sacrifice is offered. So Aaron and his sons come into chapter 9 and they offer that first sacrifice. Well, just like when they built the temple, is God going to dwell in this thing? Are we doing it right? Is we handled this well, and at the end of Exodus, the Lord dwells in it, his glory comes, right? So it puts that stamp of approval upon their faithfulness of what God has said. It does that, so they rejoice at the end of Exodus because God is dwelling with them. Now you get to chapter 9, and Aaron and his sons have heard what the Lord has said about the sacrifices they are to offer and what they are to do. Aaron and his sons has heard the Lord, but now they got to put it into practice. And y'all understand what I mean when I say that. It's one thing to hear instructions, and then it's another thing to do those instructions, right? I, I am the best teacher 
of how to drive a car. I'm telling y'all, I can handle it. I know it. I can do it. I'm, that's tongue in cheek. If y'all don't know me real well, most of what I'm saying is a joke. But I can teach somebody. How to, my boys can drive. They've been good drivers. Wiles was driving a tractor and when he was like three years old. That's not necessarily true, but it ain't far off. I can do it. So I can give good instructions. Now, I'm trying to teach Macy Grace how to drive. And let's just say, something's not connecting. And I know it's not my fault. You know what I'm saying? Because I can give good instructions. So there's that difference in hearing instructions and putting it into practice. And when you put it into practice, no matter how much you hear it and how much you try to do it, you have a little bit of a lack of confidence, right? That, man, am I doing this exactly right? You ask that question, am I doing this right? Am I doing this right? Well, here is Aaron and his sons having been told exactly what to do, having been set apart, now it's time for them to do it. And just like before, they were told how to build the tabernacle, but will God dwell in it when we finish? And he does, and they rejoice. Well, at the end of chapter 9, Aaron and his sons offer that first sacrifice there in the temple, and we see what happens in verse 22. Aaron lifted up his hands toward the people, and bless them. He came down. He just offered the sin offering. He came down and offered the burnt offering, the peace offerings. And Moses and Aaron went into the tent of meeting. And when they came out, they blessed the people. And listen to what it says. And the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. In other words, they went in and they offered the sacrifices. Did we do it right? And they did. And God's glory is seen, just like we saw at the end of Exodus. Here again, God shows himself in his glory to all the people. The glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. And verse 24, and fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the pieces of fat on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted. This is an acclamation of joy. They shouted with joy and they fell on their faces. In other words, two aspects here are seen of what the response is. There is joy because the Lord God has accepted their sacrifice. And there is humility because they recognize they're in the presence of God. So ultimately, because God has accepted their sacrifice, because he accepted it, they rejoice for now they're right before him. But their response in recognizing that because he accepted it, now we're in his presence, there's humility. And they humble themselves before the Lord and they fall on their face in humility. And so you see, these are right responses. We're to have both of these, I believe, even in our worship today. We have joy that we can worship the one true and living God, that we can come into his presence, but we come into his presence with humility, recognizing that he is God and we are not, and we are only here by his grace and his mercy. And so the Lord appears, his glory comes, they celebrate with joy all the people, and they worship him, and they worship him. At the end of chapter 9, we've seen clearly the obedience of Aaron and his sons. We see the joy of the people, and we see God's pleasure in being with them and showing him his glory, right? His pleasure with them and showing him his glory. 
man, you really have a strong high note in chapter 9 in Leviticus. And like I said, Leviticus is just one of those books that, that there's a lot of instruction. Chapters 9 and 10 are really the only, that last part of chapter 9, chapters 9 and 10 are really the only narrative in the whole book, right? They're only where it's telling the story. Rest of it's kind of instruction of what to do and, and, and how to handle things. Here's the narrative. So here, the priests having been set apart, having been given their instructions, offer their first sacrifice, the glory of the Lord appears. There is joy because they have been obedient to him and the Lord is in their presence and God's pleasure is seen. And then in chapter 10, the whole place shifts. In chapter 10, starting in verse 1, that obedience changes to disobedience. In chapter 10, the joy turns to silence and mourning. In chapter 10, the fire of God's pleasure at the end of chapter 9 that consumes the sacrifice becomes the fire of his wrath in chapter 10. Becomes the fire of his wrath in a shift. Aaron and his sons, Nadab and Abihu, just because they die in the fire here and offer up the strange fire, it does not mean that you can't name your kids Nadab and Abihu, you know? It's a great name, Nadab. Uh, you think of it, it would be unique nowadays. Nadab and Abihu, Aaron's sons. Just as Aaron had been set apart as the high priest, his sons had been set apart as priests, this would be a line that would continue called the Levitical line, right? And so here you have the, the tribe of Levi represented in Aaron and his line that will become the priesthood for all of Israel. And so you have him established and now you have his sons there helping him. And so what happens in chapter 10? Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer. A censer would be a smoking pot of fire, right? You put the fire in there, and you've probably seen these before. The last time I saw them was at the, the coronation for the king over in England. Y'all watch that? They walk down the aisle with those things that have the smoke coming out. This censer, the, the priest would take this censer to have the fire in it and the smoke. They took their censers here and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered it, offered unauthorized fire before the Lord. Literally the word is strange fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And the fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them and they died before the Lord. Just like that in a moment, all of that obedience had turned to disobedience. This was unauthorized the Lord had not commanded them to do this. All of, that, all of that joy turns to silence. As it says there at the end of verse 3, and Aaron held his peace, he remained silent. All of that pleasure turns to wrath. What just happened? Now, I find the Bible to be a fascinating book because it's the truth of God's word. And, and I simply say, like, if you were going to make up something, right? If you're going to make up a God or make up something, you're probably going to make that God up to sound like perfect and, and not offensive to anybody and not push it, right? You're going to make it. 
And then you put passages like this in here that we have to deal with. What just happened? What just happened? And what we recognize is the truth of God's word is telling us exactly who God is and exactly what he is doing. And why is this important here for Nadab and Abihu? The death of Aaron's sons leaves us stunned, right? It leaves us stunned. Uh, they fail to respect the holiness of God and, 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 and quickly they are dead. What does this mean for us? A couple things about Nadab and Abihu that I think happened. One, I think Nadab and Abihu had quickly walked into celebrity status, right? Ultimately, you know how it works. Aaron and they go in, they make the sacrifice, they come out, and the Lord welcomes it, the fire happens, and what happens? All of Israel standing out there, and what do they do? Yeah, they scream for joy. They celebrate what happens. And so Nadab and Abihu are living off of that celebration of Israel, and they're thinking, if we do this, they'll celebrate for us as well. So in other words, they take the worship of what God has commanded into their own hands. And remember what I said over and over again in these weeks? We don't get to negotiate the contract with God, right? He is the one who tells us what to do, and we are the ones who are to be obedient. We don't offer up, but Lord, let me do this, and, and let me do that, and see if I can't manage this and negotiate how this deal is going to work. The Lord tells them. Now, if you look back, just to be clear... If you look back with me in Exodus chapter 30, I think. Maybe it's 29, but we'll figure it out. It is 30. Exodus chapter 30. Exodus chapter 30, I think it's verse 9. He's speaking of the altar and how you were to handle sacrifices. And he says to them, uh, look at verse 8. When Aaron sets up the lamps at twilight, he shall burn it, a regular incense offering before the Lord throughout your generations. So what's happening for Nadab and Abihu is this incense offering that they're bringing. Remember, they take the fire, they put the incense on it, they're going to make it. So he's offering up. It's a regular incense offering before the Lord your generations. Verse 9, you shall not offer unauthorized incense on it. Do y'all see that? This is one of those things where you can try to pull the rules out. And you can go to the Lord and say, wait a minute, wait a minute. You just, you didn't tell us we couldn't do this. Y'all ever, ever been through this deal before? You didn't tell us we couldn't offer it this way. You didn't tell us that. But the Lord did tell them. It is not as if the Lord had left them guessing. It is not as if the Lord had, had left them wondering how to do this. The Lord had told them exactly, here is what you're supposed to do. Do not offer, offer unauthorized incense on it or a burnt offering or a grain offering, and you shall not pour drink offering on it. Aaron shall make atonement on its horns once a year with the blood of the sin offering of atonement. He shall make atonement for it once a year throughout your generations. It is most holy to the Lord. In other words... The Lord is saying, you can't come and just do what you want to at this altar. It has to be authorized, commanded by me. God had given them the instructions. This is a, a similar story. Y'all remember the story of Uzzah, right? Y'all remember the story of Uzzah in, in 2 Samuel and 1 Chronicles. Uzzah was one of the sons of Abinadab. Abinadab, Abinadab was one of the sons of Saul. 
and the ark had been captured by the Philistines and taken away. And so Abinadab had, had got it and they put it in his house and now Saul has died and they're bringing the ark back to the tabernacle at the time. Y'all remember this? They're bringing the ark and they've got a big spectacle out of everything and they got a big parade of David dancing before the ark as he comes in, right? And so David's dancing out there and I don't even think he has any clothes on. And so he's running through, as it says, as he danced naked before the Lord. Y'all, you know what I'm saying? And so he's dancing before the ark and they're celebrating what God has done and they're rejoicing for now the ark has come home. And so they're bringing the ark up the hill and they put the ark on a cart that's pulled by an ox. Y'all remember that? And this cart is pulled by an ox. And the scriptures say that the oxen stumbled. Y'all know what that means. The cart kind of tilts. The ark starts to fall. And what happens? Uzzah puts his hand on the ark to catch it. He's going to protect it, right? Y'all remember what the scripture says happened to Uzzah? As soon as he put his hand on his ark, the scriptures literally says he exploded with fire. In other words, judgment. Uzzah, as one theologian has said, made a clear mistake. He believed that his hand was less dirty than the mud. But in his unholiness, he touched the holiness of God and death. What we miss in that story is that God had clearly told them how you're to carry the ark. He had clearly told them that when you transport the ark, you transport it with poles going through the little islets on each side with men holding those poles up, six men in, six, in these places. Tells them, and when you transport the ark, you put a cover over it, right? So it is the glory of the Lord would not be on display for like casting your pearls before swine. You put the cover over it. And so to celebrate, they probably went to the nicest cart maker in town and got this real fancy cart like they were helping out the Lord to put his cart on put his put his ark on display and and they wanted all to see it in the celebration but it backfired because they weren't being obedient to God God had told them how to transport the ark and they didn't do it God's way and it means death it's the same here Nadab and Abihu had been told so before we go man that's harsh they clearly broke God's commandment. They clearly did the opposite of what God said to do. They clearly did the opposite of what God had said to do. And in this way, what, let me ask you again, what are the wages of our sin? Understanding this story, Nadab and Abihu, will help us understand all of Leviticus, really. What's at stake here? Because ultimately we read this as I said, oftentimes of, of this, that, and the other, and you got the fat, and you got the leg, and you got the hindquarters, and you put them apart, and you got this sacrifice for that sacrifice, this at this time, this offering versus this, and it comes together. We're like, whoa, our head is blowing up. But what we cannot forget is what's at stake here. What's at stake? Leviticus is a book about life and death. The Bible is a book about life and death, right? And so ultimately what's at stake is that, life and death. And so here Nadab and Abihu are not acting in like we just made a mistake. They are clearly 
denying the commandments of God and what they were supposed to do and how they're supposed to handle his altar. But not only that, look at what happens. Aaron's upset. He goes and gets his brother Moses, says, Moses, I need your help to talk to the Lord about this. Moses comes back and says, Aaron, this is what the Lord has said. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified, means set apart as holy. And before all the people, I will be glorified. The last thing I'm going to let you do is act in disobedience when it comes to my offering, my sacrifice, and my altar. No way. I'm not going to let you cheapen my holiness. I'm not going to let you cheapen my power. I'm not going to let you cheapen or darken who I am. The Lord says, this is my line. This is who I am, and we will not cross it. And when these two offered strange, unauthorized fire, they had acted in defiance with the clear commandments of God. And they had cheapened his holiness before the people. He was not going to allow it. Death comes immediately to them. And Aaron held his peace, or as one verse context says, Aaron was silent. Why? Because when we are faced with the judgment of God against sinfulness, we recognize that we have no offering we can make. There's no argument you can offer against God's judgment, against God's judgment. We see here, like I said, this story helps us understand Leviticus of what's at stake and what's important here. These priests were to be ceremonially clean. They had to clean themselves. They'll be physically whole, it tells us. They're, they're children even. It tells us in chapter 21. Y'all know what it says about the priest's children? This is where you get the preacher kid stuff. In, in, in chapter 21, verse 9, and the daughter of any priest, if she profanes herself by whoring. See, y'all see this? That's in the Bible. Profanes her father. She shall be burned with fire. Y'all get that? Not only that, but the, the, the priest's children have to behave. They had to come because of this position, what was required of them. Well, they needed to be made clean before the Lord ceremonially. They had to be physically whole before the Lord. Their children even had to behave, and you had to watch over it. This was a major office that God had put in place to establish to teach his people of what it takes for him to be with them and them to be with him and there was requirements here that must be held so much because they were upholding upholding the holiness and majesty of God himself they had special duties sacrifices teaching they had special provisions that were given to them. They had a special judgment. They were to be models in and of themselves as they teach, as they taught and acted before others. And these two had decided to approach the Lord on their own terms, not on his. We cannot approach the Lord however we please. We only come as he has commanded us or told us to come. We only come toward him as he is authorized. As he is authorized. This fire that Nadab and Abihu brought in was maybe taken from a, a different altar or a different place. It may, the incense may be made according to an unprescribed formula before the Lord. But either way, they were not obedient. Now, 
what happens maybe for some of you, it's happened throughout history. Man, this is a tough story. You know what I'm saying? Like, wow, that's a tough deal. To, I, I was reading where one guy came up with a theory of what happened. He was being serious. He believed in the ancient times there was several comets that hit the earth. And when those comets hit the earth, they would create a dust that was almost like a, a um, combustible gunpowder type dust. And probably what happened when those comets hit the earth and that combustible gunpowder type dust was created, these Nadab and Abihu accidentally grabbed some of that gunpowder type dust, most likely, and threw it in their sensor with the smoke. And when they threw it in their sensor with the smoke, it backfired on them and probably killed them. That's obviously what happened here. Because we can't stomach a God who would do this, right? You see, our our in focus here is to first say, man, is this the God we're, we're, we're following after? Is this the one we're going? Can we stomach this? Can we take it? And we'll go so far as to assume comets hit the earth and created some sort of gunpowder type incense and something happened in some natural way that it kind of excuses God on this kind of question. Because we don't like it. We don't like it. Because our sensibilities don't feel good about it, right? Well, they shouldn't. You know why? Because in our natural form, in our who we are as sinners, we deserve just what Nadab and Abihu got. What you have to come to grips with, what I have to come to grips with, is before a holy God, we cannot stand. And death is what we deserve. We have to come to grips with this. Y'all know the, 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 the story, right, of how you talk about the gospel. We talked about that before. Y'all know the, the saying, you got to get somebody lost before you can get them saved. Before you recognize the glory and majesty and preciousness of Jesus, you've got to also recognize your sinfulness and the judgment of God that comes upon you. Jesus will never be precious to you as he is until you recognize just how desperate you were for him. And Nadab and Abihu become a testimony, as we call sometimes a sign act. In other words, this is like Gomer and Hosea, right? Do this to show that. And ultimately what we see here next testifies to this. Because what does the Lord say to Aaron? He says, first of all, go get Mishael and Elzapon, another two more great names you can name your kids. And the sons of Uzael, the uncle of Aaron, and come them, let them carry the bodies out. Priests were not to touch dead things, right? So go get your cousins and tell your cousins to come get the bodies, right? So go get the cousins and let them come. Bring your other sons in here. So now Aaron and his two sons have to come of two other sons, as Nadab and Abihu are dead. They've got to come in and they've got to offer sacrifices now. And what does the Lord say? He says... Basically, they carried them near, they carried them in their coats to the camp. Moses said, Moses said to Aaron and Eliezer, Ethiomar, the sons, do not let the hair of your heads hang loose. Do not tear your clothes lest you die and wrath come upon you all and the congregation. But let your brothers, the whole house of Israel, be well and burning that the Lord has kindled. And do not go outside the entrance of the tent of meeting lest you die. For the anointing oil of the Lord is upon you. And they did according to the words of Moses. What he's saying here is you can't mourn your brother's death. Don't mourn it. The ripping of clothes, the letting your hair down is an act of mourning 
the weeping, the going out and weeping is an act of mourning. Do not mourn your brother's death. There's a parallel passage that may help us. Over in Ezekiel, Ezekiel chapter uh, 24. Ezekiel 24. Y'all ever been to Ezekiel before? It's in there. Pretty good sized books. You shouldn't have any problem. Ezekiel was a prophet who was also in the line of Levi, right? So in the priestly line. So he's, he is a descent, priestly descent, and he's a prophet. Ezekiel is prophesying during what we call the first fruits of deportation. So when we went through the minor prophets, you remember we talked about how the Babylonians came in and conquered Jerusalem, destroyed the temple, and took all the people to Babylon. Y'all remember that's called the exile? Ezekiel, what happened was there were several small exiles before that. The Babylonians came in and would ransack cities around Jerusalem and take people away. Ezekiel was in those first small ones. And so he's over in exile in Babylon, basically, and he's prophesying to the people. And he's telling these people, look, not only are they going to deport us and they're going to come, they're about to destroy Jerusalem and they're about to destroy the temple. So he's prophesying, saying they're going to destroy the temple. It's coming because of your judgment. So the Lord does something with Ezekiel again. He's a prophet. The Lord is going to do a sign act with Ezekiel here. And what he tells Ezekiel in chapter 24, verse 15, your wife is going to die. Your wife's going to die, and she's going to die of old age or whatever the case may be. She's going to die, but make, verse 17, but make no mourning for the dead. Bind your turban, put your shoes on your feet, do not cover your lips, nor eat the bread of men. So I spoke to people in the morning and the evening, and my wife died, and the next morning I did as I was commanded. In other words, he's told your wife's going to die, and you're not to mourn. You're not to mourn. And this death is going to represent the judgment of God. And so why is he told not to mourn? It's the same reason that Aaron and his sons were told not to mourn. It's the sense in which they were to recognize God's judgment is right and to identify even solidarity with his judgment. In other words, if Aaron would have mourned the death of his sons, in some way he would have been saying to the people, God was wrong in judging them because they were wrong in what they did. And Aaron has to testify here, the Lord is saying, to the fact that he agrees with the judgment of God. He agrees with the judgment of God. And in some ways, our lesson then is from this is that we need to recognize that God's judgment is true and it is just and it is right. Even when it seems harsh, it's what they deserve, right? So our, our desire is to say, hey, now nah, this was a comment, something accidentally happened because we're trying to explain it away, but that's not what we can do in the scriptures. It testifies to God's holiness. This is how holy he is. Nothing impure can happen in his presence. That's why the whole sacrificial system is there. That's why it's all there. Because he can't let unholy things into his presence. And when they tried to come into his altar, at his place, and offer up strange, unauthorized fire, the Lord said, no, not going to happen. And the death of these sons was a testimony that you cannot worship me how you think you want to. 
You worship me in the way I've told you, the way I've led you, the way I've provided for you. He even goes on to say there in verse 10, you are to distinguish between the holy and the common and between the unclean and the clean. And you were to teach the people of Israel all the statutes that the Lord has spoken to them by Moses. At the center for us of this is to recognize how serious God is about his holiness and how can we come into his presence. For us, it's the same way that they did. That seems strange, Josh. We're talking about the same as Leviticus? Yeah. We have to come in with a sacrifice. A sacrifice that allows us to come into his presence. We have to claim a sacrifice ourselves, right? We have to come in and say, say, here's why we can come in. Here's why we can enter into your presence. This is what Hebrews is all about. In Hebrews chapter 6, it tells us that we have a high priest who did not have to make a sacrifice for himself. Aaron and his sons had to keep a sacrifice going continually for them so they would be holy before God. But we have a high priest who didn't have to make a sacrifice for himself. He was perfect. And he didn't have to offer a sacrifice because he was sinless. He had never committed a sin. And we have a high priest, not only that, who offered a perfect sacrifice greater than even the perfect lambs offered in the Old Testament. We have a high priest who offered up himself. And we have a high priest who went into the Holy of Holies himself, a high priest who entered into the Holy of Holies and offered up his own blood of sacrifice onto the altar, not made with hands in the temple or the tabernacle, but when the altar in heaven on our behalf. He did that. And God didn't strike him down at that point. God accepted his sacrifice and said, well done. And so Hebrews tells us, based upon this high priest and this sacrifice, we now can come boldly into the throne room of God. Y'all see? We now can enter into God's presence. Why? Because we can claim a sacrifice has been made on our behalf by a perfect high priest that is good enough to cover all of our sins for all of eternity and doesn't need to be made again. And so how do we enter into the presence of God? We enter into the presence of God by claiming the sacrifice that God has provided for us in his son, Jesus Christ. And when we enter into his presence, we rejoice and we celebrate with joy and all humility because now we can come into God's presence. And when we come into his presence based upon this sacrifice made by this high priest, we are welcome there. And there is no threat of the fire and wrath of God. For this high priest and this sacrifice has taken that for us. The scriptures tell us that because of what Jesus has done, we all are priests, right? You know, the, the, the priest's job at its very heart was to enter into the presence of God on behalf of the people. Because Jesus has cleansed all of us, he tells all of us what? Come boldly into the throne of grace. Y'all remember what happened whenever Jesus died on the cross? Y'all remember there was a couple of events that took place. One, the earth shook. You remember that? 
Remember the, the, the sky went dark and black. The sun stopped shining. Y'all remember that? Y'all remember, y'all don't know if y'all remember, but the Bible tells us that some of the graves out there, the people rose up out of the graves testifying to the fact that we'll rise up out of our graves one day because when Jesus died, life was coming. You see what I'm saying? When all of that stuff happened when Jesus died, but y'all also remember that main, that, that main event of symbolism that took place. When that veil that separated the holy of holies, the presence of God from his people, when that veil ripped, testifying what? All are welcome now through the offering that I've just made. Come boldly into the throne of grace. Now we can enter boldly into God's presence because of what Jesus has done for us in his sacrifice. And it tells us there in 1 Peter 2, we're all priests of God. So that means what? We've been set apart as holy as well. Just like Nadab and Abihu and Aaron were set apart. We've been set apart as holy, as his saints before God. We've been set apart for a purpose. And it tells us because of that, we must live in such a way that we don't defile ourselves. 2 Corinthians chapter 7. 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Since we have, this is verse 1, since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Because we have been set apart as God's people, priests before the Lord, we are to cleanse ourselves of any defilement, right? We're to be, in sense, like, Aaron and his, we, we come into God's presence, so we can't come into the presence defiled. We're to cleanse ourselves through the spirit of any defilement. For our God is a consuming fire, as Hebrews tells us. And what are those defilements that we have? We see in the scriptures, the defilements we can have are some sense of where we follow after false teachers. Jesus tells us all the time, do not pursue after false teachers. Paul reminds them over and over again, don't go after false teachers. Trust the truth of God's word and follow after him in obedience. He tells us, do not give ourselves to anything that is impure. He tells us that the spirit dwells in us, so therefore our fruit must look like spiritual fruit, not the deeds of the flesh, but the fruit that comes from the spirit. Do not defile yourselves as God's people for you have been made holy. And what Nadab and Abihu had done is they had been set apart and made holy by God and they defiled themselves. That's not the only story. Before you go, all right, phew, that's the Old Testament. Do I need to remind you guys of Ananias and Sapphira? Ananias and Sapphira, in fact, that story parallels Nadab and Abihu quite clearly. I wrote down a couple of the parallels. One, at the end of chapter six, if you remember, it ended on a high note in Acts, didn't it? Barnabas had sold a field and he brought it in and the people rejoiced because now God has provided so many things and they were celebrating. Then you start the story in chapter seven of Ananias and Sapphira. So it ends on a high note like we ended in chapter nine and then it comes into somebody taking advantage of what just happened and misdoing what is. An unacceptable offering is presented. Just like with Nadab and Abihu, Ananias and Sapphira offer an unacceptable offering. Why? Because they lie before God. The unacceptable offering is perceived as intentional and careless. 
In other words, they know what they are doing when they offer it. They're not doing this. They're, they are intentionally trying to get credit for something that they did not do. Not only that, the guilty parties are struck dead. Like Nadab and Abihu who offer a strange fire before God trying to take some credit and getting everybody to cheer again. Ananias and Sapphira are trying to get some credit before the church saying, look what we gave, look what we gave, just like Barnabas did. And because of that, Nadab and Abihu were struck dead, Ananias and Sapphira were struck dead. Both of their bodies are carried away and buried, just like here with Nadab and Abihu. It follows this, as I said, this positive scene, almost snatching defeat out of the jaws of victory, if you will. And the text draws attention to the glory of God as judgment. Leviticus chapter 10, verse 3. This is what the Lord has said, Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified, and before all people, I will be glorified. In Acts chapter 5. In Acts chapter 5, I believe. It's been a while since I've been in Acts. In Acts chapter 5, I believe there in verse 11, and great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard, speaking of this fear coming from God's glory. Here's what I want us to learn from this, by the way. Following after Jesus is serious. Right? Our sin is serious. Our need for a sacrifice to be made for us is serious. And as I said before, until we see how dangerously close we are to the just and right judgment of God because of our sin, we will never recognize how glorious our Savior really is to save us from it. What we have to do is be reminded quite often of how desperate we were. We were like Nadab and Abihu. We were offering strange fire and any moment that fire could come back and kill us and God would have been right to do it. But yet, in his grace and in his mercy, he withheld his wrath against us in our sin and provided for us a sacrifice that was sufficient and enough for all eternity. And he covered us by his own precious blood through his son, Jesus Christ. Washed us and made us appropriate to enter into his presence. Boldly. We don't have to come in. If you've been claiming the name of Jesus, you don't have to come in worried, you don't have to come in guessing. You don't have to come in wondering. You don't have to come in scared. Am I allowed? In fact, he tells us in this revolutionary way, you can call me father. In other words, my house is your house. What I've provided is for you. And you can call me father when you call me. We got to recognize how crazy that is. 
that we who were once sinners separated from God under his judgment and wrath, just like Nadab and Abihu, just hoping he doesn't pour it out on us. We were once in that condition, rebels from him. Yet because of what he's done for us in Christ Jesus through his own blood, making us, washing us whiter than snow, we can now come boldly into his throne room and we can call out to him, Father, Father. Even when we don't know what to say, he says, I'll give you the words, my children. God in his graciousness is on display because it's juxtaposed up against us and our sinfulness. We, I think, need a good reminder, I do, of how undeserving I was to be able to cry out, Father. We need a good reminder sometimes of how desperate we were before God. Hopeless and helpless unless he saves us and he provides a sacrifice that's enough. We need to learn that we probably deserved rightfully what Nadab and Abihu got. And by God's great grace, we got something different. And it is not, it is not because God has relented on his holiness. It is not because God has taken away his wrath by just sweeping our sin under the rug. It is not because God has said, you know what, I'll give you a pass. It's because God said, I'm going to send my son and pour out my wrath on him. So don't say in here anymore that that's the Old Testament, Josh. That's how God used to act in wrath. We like to go by the New Testament when it comes to love. God has not changed. He's the same from beginning to end. And he will protect his holiness from now to the day forever. And he's protected his holiness by not sweeping our sin under the rug, but providing a sacrifice for us that's sufficient and enough. He's protected his holiness by not just saying your sin is okay. I'll not deal with that and just let you have a pass. He's given us his son. So God has not relented in his wrath by just sweeping sin under the rug. In fact, in the New Testament, God has ratcheted up his wrath and judgment all the more because he pours it out not on deserving sinners like myself, but he pours it out on his son who did not deserve it in our place, in our place. God's wrath has not been relented just because he said, okay, I won't do that anymore. It's been relented because he has ended it. So we can say, now, there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There's none. Because Jesus has taken it all. Come boldly into the throne room of God. Leviticus teaches us exactly what we needed. What kind of sacrifice, what kind of priest, everything, because this is life and death. He teaches us exactly what we needed and exactly what Jesus did for us. He teaches us this. So my prayer is that we walk out of here going, man, not man, God was harsh. My prayer is we walk out going, God is gracious. 
to give us a savior. And whenever you pray, remember, you pray in the name of Jesus for a reason. Because it's in his name we come boldly into the throne room of God. And he says something to us that, again, should shake us in our boots. Anyone who calls on my name, I will hear them. And I'll answer you. Let's go to the Lord now. Father, we call upon your name because you are gracious and kind. And there is no reason whatsoever you should hear us. There's no reason whatsoever you should answer us other than your son and what he did for us. And so, God, we come claiming nothing but the blood of Christ Jesus, claiming nothing but his name in our life. For, God, you are good to sinners like us. And we praise you. Thank you, Lord God, for Jesus Christ, our Savior. May we never, ever for a moment take him for granted. But may we always recognize our own sinfulness and forever be grateful and thankful for our precious Savior who covers our sin. So now we come to you, Father, asking you to help us pursue you more. Help us follow you. Help us turn away from false teachers. Help us to trust your word. Help us not to defile ourselves by the things of this world, but to follow after you. Help us to produce those fruits of the spirit within us and give us more fruit. Help us, Father, to be faithful, to proclaim the good news of a Savior who saves us from our sin. Help us, God, to be faithful priests, to not compromise your holiness before the world, but to live as a display of your glory every day. Thank you, God, for our Savior in Christ. And it's his name and his name alone we claim now. Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Thank you all so much. We will see you all Sunday.